What would it look like if we all listened more? Listening to audiobooks inspires us, motivates us, even brings us closer, and there's no better place to listen than Audible. Audible has the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet, and I'm supposed to talk about an audiobook that I've listened to recently, and I'm actually choosing something that has brought me together, which is that I gave my dad a gift subscription to Audible for Christmas, and we have started downloading some of the same books. We don't live in the same city, and it's hard to sort of keep up with reading with each other, like we, you know, different amounts of time, like you can't necessarily be reading the same book at the same time, but you can definitely listen to the same audiobook at the same time. And so we've been doing a little of that. Uh, he really likes a history, but I really love Stephen King. And I think I've made my dad a Stephen King fan. So that is a free idea for you and your family. And if you want to use, you know, the friend's offer code to get those subscriptions, you can do that. Try it free for 30 days by visiting audible.com slash friends or by texting friends to 500 500. That's audible.com spelled A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash friends to 500 500 for your free 30 day trial. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. And today I have a very special guest actually in the studio, um, a rarity for <laughs> the show. It's Alice Wong. I'm here in San Francisco with her. Alice has been on the show before when I found out I was going to be in San Francisco. She was literally the first person I thought of wanting to talk to while I was here. Um, because she has a really important perspective to bring to some of the issues that we talk about all the time on the show. She is the founder and director of Disability Visibility. She is the host of the podcast, Disability Visibility, and she's the editor of a new compilation of essays that's out like today, I think, pretty much. Oh, the 15th. The 15th. Okay, well, close. Enough, close enough. By the time you're hearing this podcast, probably out. It's called Resistance and Hope, Essays by Disabled People, Crip Wisdom for the people. Alice, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. So I think actually maybe a place to kind of start in is um, with the language. Because your essay uh, compilation, you know, the word crip is in there. It sure is. <laughs> yeah, it sure knows it there. Um, and you run, like, you have a weekly Twitter chat that's called Crip the Vote. So crip is like a word that you're using yeah so it's a a lot of people with and without disabilities you know ask a lot like is this offensive you know this is just you know like what are you doing with this word and you know a lot of my uh, friends and I uh, who are much more I think politicized as disabled people we really are using it as it uh, uh, claim to power. Is it like queer, sort of? I think so. I mean, I don't want to say like there's, I don't want to equate it, but. But in the same way analogy. that activists in the 80s and 90s mm-hmm. like claimed the word queer as a kind of empowering word. And also, I think because it covered a lot of different identities without, it, it was actually in a way more inclusive than Mm-hmm. bisexual or lesbian or 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 gay and crip kind of covers 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 yeah. it a lot <laughs> yeah and, uh, it's really more of an attitude mm-hmm. and you know take on life i think historically it's been used for you know people with physical disabilities to put the word cripple and you know i think it's just a way to 
to really claim our community. And it's an identity. It's an identity issue. And even though right now, you know, we love to, like, you know, poo-poo identity politics, I think now, more than ever, we have to be very clear about what we believe in, how we identify the communities that we're a part of. Like, if we're not clear now on, like, what's at stake and how it impacts us, it's kind of like, you know, I don't know when you're going to, like, yeah. to really think about who you are. I think it's really important to identify who you are. I think that's what I what I think of when I think of the power of the word crip, because you very, I, should, I was about to say you generously included me, but then that's n- not true because I am a member of that community. You are. <laughs> a couple times over, I might add, just, you know, straighten my collar, you know. Um, I'm an alcoholic addict and I have bipolar disorder. Which is in the news right now. (laughs) Not me, not my bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. But we were just talking about this before we started taping. Mm -hmm. Um, And this maybe gets us in a a fairly direct way to talking about language again. Mm -hmm. But uh, the reason why people are talking about bipolar disorder right now at this very moment is that Kanye West was just visiting with the president. Mm -hmm. Did you happen to see any of it? I missed out on that. So give me the little rundown if you don't mind. It was tough to watch. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, I'm someone, I'm a fan mm-hmm. of his music. Um, he's an incredibly, like, sort of powerful presence and, and person and charismatic personality. And he's done a lot of really cool things. And he was really kind of doubling down on his support for um, uh, Trump. And he was speaking in a way that seemed to represent not a complete grasp of, I just, yeah, I don't want to use not grasp of reality because who knows? That might be his reality, yeah. His reality is his reality. Exactly. Um, and maybe that gets us to what you're talking about, which is that like, I think people are really quick to say, like, he was having an episode. And who were you to decide, like, he has an episode? Yeah. I mean, I, we don't say that about Trump, really. And and we just sort of say, like, well, he just talks the way that he talks. And maybe that's what happened with Kanye. I mean, I think the more important thing about what happened with Kanye isn't, like, doing a mental health diagnosis. It's what his opinions are which don't have anything to do with his mental health, really. I do find that a lot of his either fans or just people in general who maybe, maybe think of themselves as big progressives. I do see people using, like, mental illness as this, like, explainer. Oh, you know, he's just extremist because of, you know, there's something not right. Right. As if the idea that being racist, being, you know, just out and out a bigot is a mental illness. And I think that's where we can't conflate that. Yeah. I mean, I... It's really dangerous to conflate that. Right. Like, I, I, I posted this on Twitter and I saw other people who are diagnosed with bipolar disorder say the same thing, which is that there's nothing about being bipolar that makes mm. you a racist or want to support authoritarians. Like, it's just a 
psychological disorder Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you can be all kinds of different kinds of people and have it. Mm -hmm. You can be a racist and have it. You Mm -hmm. probably were racist before you had it, you know, and you can be someone who isn't racist and have it, but it doesn't change doesn't necessarily like change those kinds of opinions. And I think it's an easy way for people to not think too deeply as to why we think the way we think or why we feel the way we feel. I think that's kind of the thing that I get, uh, I feel a lot in terms of what people use terms like, oh, these events are so insane. Right, like the world is going crazy. Well, you know what? Let's look a little bit more deeply <laughs> as to how we got here versus choking up to this, you know, using these, you know, metaphors of dis- disease and disability. Yeah, like I think, you know, I think progressives and people who care about social justice have done a pretty good job of like moving um, our language to people first, right? Like, so where we say a person with bipolar, we don't say like a bipolar, you know, um, where we talk about people with disabilities. Um, And I often think that I wish we could also just go the next step, which is to not talk about diagnoses, but to talk about people's behavior and specific things that they're doing rather than like assume a diagnosis behind it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we can talk about the stuff that Kanye actually said, which was like pretty sexist Mm -hmm. also. um, And not totally attached to history, I would say. Mm -hmm. Let's say that. (laughs) We can agree Mm -hmm. on history. Um, And then my personal pet peeve, which is the phrase off his meds, which Mm -hmm. as a person who depends on meds, like, uh, really rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, and I think people just don't understand, like, how important medications are. That somehow, you know, just the idea that some people are just like, I think one thing that a lot of people with disabilities all face, whether what no matter what kind you have, there's a lot of doubt. Like there's like, do you really need your beds? Mm-hmm. Have you tried yoga, Audubonry? <laughs> have you tried yoga? <laughs> because I read, I read somewhere that you know yoga or plus a gluten-free diet. Exactly. Gluten-free diet might really do something for your bipolar disorder. That's one thing that I just you know love with like not disabled people to really think like. Do you really need this? And we just, you, have you not tried? Are you not trying hard enough? I think that to me is like the heart of what like a lot of ableism is. It's the idea that we all must be working 24-7 to gain the favor and try to be as durable as possible. Right. And I think the phrase, you know, on or off meds or whatever, like... The reason why it bugs me so much is that, and this is sort of where I thought you were going, is that mm-hmm. meds are important and they're also mm-hmm. a real, I don't know what the right bingo game like might be the mm-hmm. right metaphor for people with psychiatric disorders especially, which is that you're kind of constantly kind of looking for the right balance. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, you know. Um, There's a lot of work involved. Yeah. And sometimes you have to experiment with going on and off them mm. because you need to see, like, has something changed or... If bodies are different with symptoms. So, like, speculating why if someone's behavior has to do with being on or off meds is just insulting, basically. It's absolutely <laughs> insulting. <laughs> insulting and ableist. Yeah. And, I, I you know, I can figure out what my behavior 
is like and what my medications do for me. But like, I think the best kind of the metaphor that people might understand because we've come to understand it's very politically incorrect. It's very rude. It's very insensitive to talk about whether a woman's behavior is governed by it being that time Mm -hmm. of the month. It's kind of the same thing to say, mm-hmm. like, that person's off their meds. Well, it also reduces the person down yeah. to their symptomology, mm-hmm. right? It's like, that is the, it details all of who you are. And I think that's where, you know, disabled people want to be seen as complex, nuanced, fully formed individuals with autonomy and Let's face it, there are disabled bigots, <laughs> disabled assholes out there. Mm-hmm. We're not angels, we're not safe, so we're not dangerous, unstable people. And I think the other thing that sort of on off meds phraseology and that diagnosing kind of gets mm-hmm. to is that it's also not the goal of every disabled person to be quote unquote normal. And that some people really revel in their difference. And I think that's where Crip is evolved as well. Or even, like, identity first language, because, well, I think the standard is person first. Mm-hmm. You know, there are people like myself that, you know, I describe myself as a disabled person because I think of that as part of my culture and part of my identity. So, you know, everyone's at a different place in terms of how they want to see themselves. And it's really about taking the lead and just... Respecting the people's how people want to be described and asking, right? I think that's the first time yes. we talked. One of the things that was really helpful for me, and I really did find our conversation, I guess, almost a year ago now, um, to be one of the most powerful ones I've had because really, oh, thanks. Well, because you just reminded me in the ways that there are some parallels between you know, uh, being disabled and, and having other kinds mm-hmm. of vulnerable identities mm-hmm. that people who think of themselves as being privileged and people who are privileged, let's say, mm-hmm. um, have a really hard time addressing someone's difference that's right there in front of them. That to bring attention to the fact like, hey, Alice, you know what? You're disabled. Like that that mm-hmm. feels like, oh my God, I can't, mm-hmm. I can't say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to just ignore it. Mm-hmm. I ha- like I'm, I think culture tells me to just try and ignore it, mm-hmm. right? Whereas I think you pointed out to me, like, no, like... We could talk about it. I could identify. I could, you know, especially if it's not, like, a total stranger. Right. Like, on the bus, like, telling me, like... To get to what, yoga. Right. right. <laughs> you know, like, what happened to you? You know? But again, I do think that there's so much, I think, if we talk about, like, the media, there's so much that's really not understood. Mm-hmm. And part of that problem is people being afraid to identify. Because clearly, if you live in a society where you're going to be stigmatized, you're going to be discriminated, there are going to be people who don't identify because of fear. Mm-hmm. And the shitty way people are treated. And there's going to be a lot of people who just, you know, are just exhausted about explaining things. And I think that's another kind of form of invisible layer, labor, that a lot of marginalized folks constantly have to do, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think about people of color, black people, who just have to, like, you know, say, no, like, X, Y, Z, you know, like, and again, this is a weird, like, 
expectation that we are somehow having to be ambassadors and explainers often for free mm-hmm. at the, you know, at the behest of the people who are centered, which are quite cishet, cishet, folks that usually fail. Yep. Um, I think what I'm hearing from you kind of in sort of balancing mm-hmm. out, like it's okay to talk about someone's disability, but mm-hmm. it's also like we want to be careful about asking for too much emotional labor is that mm-hmm. just don't make any assumptions about where people are. Like sometimes it's probably very cool and welcome to say, what do you think about this mm-hmm. as a disabled person? Could you tell me what you think about X, Y, Z? But also be prepared for that person to say, you know what? Thanks, but I don't really have time for that. Yeah. <laughs> Can we talk about <laughs> coffee and cats? Yes. I would exactly. love to talk about it. And I think uh, this reminds me of a recent DM you sent me. Mm-hmm. Oh, yep. Regarding inspiration part. Yes. And, as I recall, you asked me, like, is this inspiration part? I think something to that effect. And I'm like, well, I think it would be a great idea. If you don't know if it is or not, I think it would be good just to say that as a question. Yeah. And to really invite other people with disabilities. And I didn't really try to. I didn't do that. Yeah, that's okay. But I. Put uh, but that I out will. There. But I wanted. I, 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 put re- it out I there. appreciated you saying that to me, and I think that is something I'm going to handle in the future. Mm-hmm. So I've told you before, and I'll say it again. I'm actually reading this, but it's also true. I love my bra from Third Love. I am wearing it. Really, I'm literally wearing it right now. It is very comfortable. It is the bra I often bring on long plane trips. I am in San Francisco right now. A third Love designs its bras with breast size and shape in mind using thousands of real women's measurements so they fit perfectly and feel even better. They have cup size ranging from A through H and bands up to 48 inches. Third Love has the most sizes of any brand. But is there a simple fit finder quiz that actually I think really sort of sells Third Love? I don't usually mention this because, but we've since we've been all over representation today, I will point out that I know some non-binary people who use Third Love because you can do uh, the Fit Finder quiz online. You don't have to go someplace and like show some sales lady your body. You can just do this quiz and find out for yourself and get a pretty good, perfect, well, not pretty good. The person I know who's done this says the bra fits her great. So I am all for it. Um, And again, there is a, with friends like these, code that you can use to get 15% off. You would go to thirdlove.com slash friends to do that. Again, that's thirdlove.com slash friends for 15% off today. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut, I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiancé. 
So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiancé of Stevan Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. Maybe I'll just describe the situation now because it was a really yeah, interesting I'm fascinated. Um, thing that happened. I read this piece in, I guess I'll just say it was in the New York Times and it was in their vows section. And it was sort of centered on a woman who um, had a double amputation, mm-hmm. I believe, because I don't remember what what the cause was, but she'd gotten a double amputation and it was sort of centered on her wanting to walk down the aisle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've tried to become much more educated and aware of disability issues in the time Mm -hmm. that I've known you. Um, And what I, what leapt out at me from that story was like, it would be okay if she didn't. Like, Mm -hmm. right? It wouldn't, wouldn't it be okay? It wouldn't be just like, You know, this triumph of adversity. Yeah. And this huge kind of like feel good moment when when he's already should be a case just full of love and joy and happiness. And then there was also the whole thing that happens a lot in these stories where one person, where a couple is together and one of the one of person in the couple meets with some kind of illness mm-hmm. or encounters a di- disability mm-hmm. and there's this talk by people in the family of like how he didn't he didn't leave her exactly <laughs> but he is so brave <laughs> he is so brave it appears you know really, really noble really wow wow he took him off on the team yeah <laughs> uh, but again this idea that you know disabled people don't have as much as to offer. Right. And it puts this weird di- power dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, again, this is like, the, instead of a white savior, the able- we've got able-bodied saviors. Right. And, you know, for people who say, to get upset when disabled folks say, oh, that's inspiration board, we're not balking or taking anything away from what's that individual bride wanted because right. that's her life, her choice, her agency, more power to her. It is a framing. Right. It is it is a narrative that is basically clickbait. And I think that's what's problematic. That 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 these are the stories that we typically get. And these are the typical stories that not disabled audiences think of what they think of disability and that's so limiting yeah there's so much more to us I think I think so too I think there is a way that that story could have been written that would have told the same kind of like this woman you know wanted to accomplish something and she did Mm -hmm. and that's 
great because any we can read a story about someone accomplishing a goal and no matter if we think that goal is a good goal like we, we read a story about someone climbing a mountain and we're like mm-hmm. that's great mm-hmm. but we don't like overvalue climbing mountains because of it right like we don't think mm-hmm. that that's what everyone should do so i feel like there's a way they could have written this story that would be like that's great but not like well i'm glad you mentioned that because i do think you know as you know journalism itself has yeah. such a long way to go in terms of really being diverse. And when I think about diversity, I think about disability. And we're still at that place where disability is not seen as part of these diversity initiatives or you know, conversations about workplace disability. And because it's still seen as this individual pathology impairment, a problem that needs to be fixed. And it doesn't really welcome different ways of doing work. I think that's where, you know, the structure of what we think of as journalism, the structure of publishing is incredibly centered on not disabled folks. And until we get disabled editors, disabled producers, more people who are visible, whether their disability is apparent or not. Like people like you talking about being bipolar, that basically, yeah. I think, in the podcasting world and in the media world. Like, I think a lot of people, a lot of progressives have come to realize that a lack of, um, Racial diversity and ethnic diversity and religious diversity in newsrooms was a problem in covering 2016 mm-hmm. um, because, you know, I've, I've talked about this maybe too much. But when I, I look back at 2016, it was my friends who were people of color and who were Muslim and who were otherwise, um, you know, non-centered people who were the ones who were like, he's going to win because they saw the capacity for the country to do that. They weren't like, our country's getting better and better all the time. And like, <laughs> I this, yeah. And also, I would also say that I think marginalized communities do what, mm-hmm. what a Trump administration would look like. Yeah. Yep. like there, did you remember like, you know, a few months afterwards, there were a lot of folks, whether they're at the center or progressives or whatever, they're like, let's give him a chance. <laughs> yeah, like, I do remember that. Like, let's, yeah. let's not jump to any conclusions. Right. Well, if you ask any marginalized folks, they're like, they actually already see what's happening. And as we see today, two years afterwards, the way he's constantly attacking the Affordable Care Act, mm-hmm. the work requirements now, Yep. Throughout Medicaid, throughout states. I mean, at this new proposed public charge rule yeah. by Homeland Security, we see their attitudes. Yeah. It's very clear their values are. They're carrying out exactly what they wanted. Yeah. And that's to make a wider, more glorious, uh, family based, heterosexual America. Yeah. I just wanted to do one more thing about diversity in newsrooms, which is that, so I think the parallel here, as much as we can recognize that diversity of race, ethnicity, and religion is helpful in covering politics, there really should be some disabled people in those newsrooms as well, 
they're going to see things that other people don't see. And like, I, I think this came up when we were talking about the Times piece, which is that if you had sent a person who might be in a wheelchair to cover that story, you might have still gotten a great story, mm-hmm. but it would have been written maybe a little differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is where, you know, the storytelling matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is that dynamic where the story is seen through the prism Mm-hmm. of all of the lessons of that storyteller. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where, for so long, most of it is, is not, it's not mm-hmm. included the same old list. And that's, you know, it shouldn't be a anomaly. Yeah, it shouldn't be something special. It should be something we expect and demand in the same way that a lot of people who can, liberal, progressive, whatever, leftists who demand diversity in all these other ways. Well, you know, the CDC said, came out recently and said one in four Americans oh, yeah. have some sort of disability. That's yeah. that is a significant. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, more people more professions don't pay attention to that speaks to how you know, ableism is just still very much the status quo. It's just not even I think even that term, ableism it's foreign to a lot of people because it's just so much ingrained in how we think and how we do things. I want to take a short break and then actually want to come back and talk more about some of the policies that you mentioned mm-hmm. um, in terms of what the Trump administration is doing as it relates to the disabled community and relates to every community. That's right. <laughs> so take a quick break. Be right back. These days, you can get practically everything on demand. This podcast you can get on demand. You can listen whenever you want when it's convenient for you. The other two things I've already talked about you can get on demand. So why are you still taking trips to the post office to mail your letters and packages when you can get postage on demand with stamps.com? I use stamps.com for the not a whole lot of business uh, mailing that I do, but I do do some and they're actually coming up. I will be doing a lot uh, for the holidays. I'll be sending gifts to clients. I call them sometimes to make make myself feel more adult, but they're really editors. Uh, And stamps.com allows me to do it any time of the day or night. I don't have to go to the post office. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package using your own computer and printer and the mail carrier just picks it up. So again, you know what? There's a friend's offer code for this. With this offer code, you get $55 of free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com, and before you do anything else, they're going to change this in the copy someday. You don't click on the radio microphone. You click on the podcast microphone at the top of the homepage and type in friends. That's stamps.com, podcast microphone, enter friends. Are you picky about what you use in your home? I am, and you should be, and Grove is here to help. Grove.co, not Grove.com, that will take you someplace different. Grove.co is where you find the best home and personal care products online because Grove believes in a healthy, beautiful home, and they believe that should be accessible to everyone. Every product at Grove has been tested rigorously for health, effectiveness, and environmental impact. They've shipped over 1 million boxes to families across the country, and in doing so, they're bringing sustainability, safety, and transparency to an industry dominated by products with harmful chemicals in them. 
I like Grove. Um, you know, you can do your own research about chemicals and toxins or whatever, but I like that I can see on their website exactly what's in everything. Uh, and they have my favorite brands, including Mrs. Myers and Method and Seventh Generation. They also have their own brand. Uh, they have Burt's Bees. I have been using the Grove brand, um, which is kind of cool because it's uh, they send you like a glass um, spray bottle and then you mix uh, water with like a little packet of their cleaner. So you use a lot fewer resources. And that makes me feel, you know, somewhat better. I mean, it's not going to solve everything. And really, we should be enacting policies rather than making just individual personal changes. But again, you should also advocate for large policy changes too. And Grove also, this stuff smells great. So find out how committed Grove is to its customers with a 100% happiness guarantee and free shipping. It is easy to discover amazing and affordable natural home and personal care products. My husband loves the deodorant he got there. Uh, so shop with confidence and know you're supporting a safer environment. Right now, my listeners can try Grove with a free two-month VIP membership and a bonus gift by going to grove.co, again, grove.co.com slash friends. That's G-R-O-V-E dot C-O slash friends. Grove makes it easy to have a happy and healthy home. So, um, Alice, you mentioned some of the specific policies that uh, the Trump administration is is putting in place, has put in place, is proposed to put in place. And that reminds me, one of the specific things I wanted to get your input on was the lens that you have to view the midterms. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when I think about the midterms, almost every issue that is top of mind, that's making headlines right now, has an aspect to it that is really resonant with the disabled community. I think every issue is a disabled disabled yes. issue. <laughs> like every issue That's is a much a, more blunt way of putting yeah, it. Yeah, I think, you know, very much in the same way, you know, every issue is a woman's issue. Mm-hmm. Every issue is an issue of, you know, people of color. Yep. I think this is where, again, you know, we're not, like, limited by our demographics it is, in terms of, like, how we see things and how things matter for us. And I think also in the same way that a lot of people can are awakening to the ways that patriarchy and white supremacy undergird our entire society. And so every issue you can think of does have an aspect to it of mm-hmm. of some kind of um, either helping or hurting white supremacy, helping or hurting the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a, another word that I, ableism is the only one we have right now. Well, I think one of my friends said... Uh, Able supremacy. Ableist supremacy, that probably... <laughs> yeah, because that's definitely a form of supremacy. Yeah, and there's all these different ways that the policies we talk about or the language we use, like, sort of undergird it or do something to to, to, to help dismantle it. Um, but let's talk... A lot of people are still really reeling from the Kavanaugh hearings. That has a specific disability community impact. Do you want to talk about that? Sure thing. Uh, you know, not only are we going to be impacted with, you know, Roe versus Wade to be overturned, and all the things that, you know, as we do, upcoming decisions to majority the ACA and healthcare is going to affect all of us, but especially people with disabilities, but you know, Kavanaugh, he's, there was one really disturbing, you know, rule he made in a case called, uh, do XRL Tarlow versus DC. And it was a case that was brought to the DC District Court 
by three people with intellectual disabilities who had involuntarily surgical procedures done to them. And the district court ruled that their due process rights were violated. And guess what? Kavanaugh ruled vacated wow. that decision because he said, you know, I'm just paraphrasing, you know, dis- people with intellectual disabilities, with a disability, how can they make these, how can they choose for themselves? How do they do what they want? Mm-hmm. So that raised a lot of disturbing red flags. It raised a lot of disturbing red flags for people in the disability community. Because again, this is super scary in terms of bodily autonomy, self-determination. It's just a belief that you may have a cognitive developmental intellectual disability and you can still make decisions for yourself. You know what you want. People have that capacity often with supports with the right supports. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he just had this blanket attitude it doesn't bode well for no. <laughs> you know, a lot of folks but just again this idea that you know we shouldn't is it okay to have surgical procedures done without consent? You know, is that the idea that... It's so weird because it's like the inverse of his ruling about the underage woman who wanted an abortion, like actively wanted it. He was like, no, you can't make that decision. It's And actually, both of them are disempowering, right? Both of them are just taking agency away from someone who's marginalized. Yep. You know, and it's a whole worldview that is really ableistic, Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, we're going to see challenges. You mentioned the public charge rule. Um, I think some people have probably seen it. Maybe they don't quite make the connection to the disabled uh, rights activism or the disabled community with it, which is this um, uh, rule that's been proposed in Homeland Security that would start counting receiving public benefits as a... Um, I think the language is a negative charge. Yeah. So like if you're people, if you're, if you want to immigrate, you know, Homeland Security runs a tab on you. Right. Well, I think there's a point system, right? Yeah. Like, there's, yeah. There's literally like a point system. Basically, this is so dangerous and so horrible that, okay, a lot of people have disabilities, not by choice, try as either they're bored with it or happens to them. And purely for that fact, they won't be able to get a visa. Yeah. So they're basically saying to the entire world, some bodies don't matter. Yeah. Purely because of their function or their limitations. And this is something that's being imposed. I think we've we've seen a fair amount of news about it in terms of immigration, like people who are here and there are now immigrants who are afraid of receiving their benefits that they are completely they're not here illegally they are receiving public benefits because they're here legally but because they want to become citizens they're afraid to take advantage of these benefits because they worry it will hurt their citizenship and then it's also being used to judge against people who are coming here again wanting to come legally right for visas also visas and great cards and this is a eugenics approach to immigration basically 
basically they don't want us to live and have the same kind of access or ability to thrive because if you're telling people you can't have access to food stamps, housing assistance, and Medicaid, and Medicaid is a major provider of long-term services and support. So this is personal for me because I'm on Medicaid because of my disability. I, when I got here to the studio, I got here with assistance. I, you know, without assistance, I wouldn't be able to get out of bed, to use the bathroom, take a shower. My life is wrapped up in the kinds of ability to have a group of people taking care of me. And that is only right now because of the way our uh, programs work through Medicaid. There are no private health insurance that they could do this. Medicare does not do this. I want to really emphasize that because of all the folks who are so, you know, mm-hmm. Medicare for all folks. Medicaid for all might be a better... Oh, thank God. Thank you. <laughs> I do not... Like, if it is possible in the future, I would love for you to do an episode on Medicare for all because I think there's a lot of enthusiasm for it, but they don't realize how it really leaves a lot of people out. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I think uh, it's incredibly painful to me because it basically states that you are nothing but somebody who consumes resources. That you have nothing to offer as a person in society whether you're an immigrant or not. This really speaks to this larger view of disabled people as people without agency, without power, without value. Because again, we're living in capitalism, right? Mm. And for some reason, if you don't have a paid job, somehow you're not productive. And I think that's such bullshit. (laughs) I think it is too. And I think, you know, one of the things that you and other disabled rights activists have really opened my eyes to in terms of the function of, of Medicaid is that it allows you to produce. It allows you to be a pers- the kind of person that supposedly we want in society, right? We, who creates and is a part of a community. And that isn't that benefit worth pretty much whatever it is we would put in in terms of the assistance side? Like, isn't the art that is created by a disabled person because they are able to to get out of bed, to, you know, uh, you know, live alone or live with with minimal like other assistance. Isn't that worth, you know, what we spend on on assistance? Isn't the art, isn't the isn't the community value, the person being in a community? Just like, I mean, it's not like you have to be working to contribute value. It's, you know, I think it did for I mean, they're pro-life people. And also, like, so these are people who say they're yes. pro-life. Of course. <laughs> because they have no sense of irony. Yeah, they don't demand that the fetus get a job. They don't do, you know. Uh, but yeah, I think this is where, again, there's this really strange 
idea that, you know, safety net programs make our society better. I'm a big believer in the safety net. And I think when you drive people away... I don't even like calling it a safety net. Okay, what do you want to call it? I don't know, but it's not a it's safety net. It's more than that. It's more than that. And it's also, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's what allows you to be you, right? To participate, to be able to talk to me today. It's a lifeline, it's, and it, and it, and it's But it's also what you, you get to have that because of these programs are in place. And all that means is it just raises you up to where, I shouldn't say, I'm trying to... T- barely. It barely does. Yeah. <laughs> right. But like, it mean, I, I, you get mm-hmm. to participate in society at the same degree that I do. Mm-hmm. I mean, or just about, right? Mm-hmm. Like, shouldn't everyone be able to participate in society? Well, I think and that's, that's not a safety net to me, right? Like, right, that's but like, I think that's a really interesting too because historically, disabled people have not been able to. Right. I think... And this is where, you know, those disabled folks really don't realize that it's really within the last, you know, century, half century, that we have had segregation and institutionalization of disabled people. Like, disabled people had to fight so hard just to be in the public sphere. And, you know, that to me is like what people don't really understand historically how hard it was because most people just assumed people with disabilities well no there are these ugly laws have you heard of that? no so there were actually laws on the books in the United States to say that disabled people cannot be in public because we're so repulsive it was so disturbing we scare people and again, well, you do breathe like Darth Vader. We've covered that before. And I love Darth so. Vader. He is. <laughs> you know, Darth is misunderstood. Okay, he's just a guy. He's just a guy doing, living his best life. He's trying. He's getting along. In the Empire. He has a disability. It's like he has a thing. He's breathed, you know. He's pretty amazing if you think yeah, about it. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's sort of, he could be inspiration porn, really. Like, if you think about it. like He is filled with the force. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but you're as saying as am I, as are you. But like, it's true. I mean, I, I believe you that those laws exist. I'm not surprised at all. I mean, there's yeah. laws against anything that makes white people uncomfortable. White able people uncomfortable probably has a law against it somewhere. Right, and I think even though today, you know, we guess we can say like, oh, you know, that was the past, the the battle days. Well, you know what? Today we've seen, you know, these proposed rules like. The public charge, yeah, which does the almost exact same thing. Yeah, says we're not allowing disabled immigrants to, to be part of our society. So we're saying, if you have this X Y Z condition, you're not worthy. Mm-hmm. You can't get more eugenic than that. No, and this um, brings me to another really kind of almost literal point as far as the midterms and disability community. And participation in society, which is voter suppression mm-hmm. and literal participation in civic society by disabled people. I think a lot of people think of voter suppression as being something that's mainly about race, mm-hmm. but perhaps you have a different sure. perspective. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't have the statistics, but definitely the participation rates of disabled people are less than not disabled people. And there are still a lot of cases, documented cases, of inaccessibility 
at the polls. And, you know, there are places where a building is inaccessible. Maybe the actual machine is inaccessible. There are blind folks who often do their local board of elections because the machines that they're using mm. are not accessible or that they are not able to cast a ballot privately. Some people say, oh, why can't somebody help them? Well, that's not the point. <laughs> if you have the right, Audubonry, yeah. to vote privately and confidentially, so should every single other disabled person. That is a civil right. And the fact that some people who are voting with this, who are disabled still need assistance, still are left out, still face barriers when they go to their neighborhood precinct. I imagine voter ID laws also suppress the vote yes, for disabled community because... Not, it's it, not that easy to get an ID. Yeah. It costs money to get an ID. And it is where the intersection is of poverty and disability lie class, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously race. Uh, yeah, voter ID is just another tactic that hurts disabled people. And let's also think about just uh, the work it takes mm-hmm. to vote, uh, whether you go in person or whether you mail. I think, uh, you know, transportation is a huge issue with older adults mm-hmm. and people with disabilities in rural areas, even in cities, where it may be more difficult, but time-consuming. So you think about all these states that are doing things like having fewer fewer precincts, fewer uh, shorter hours, those are always ways to suppress the vote. Yeah. Where people can't wait in lines, yeah. in the heat for four hours. Like that is something that is so wrong. It just gets me so angry. Because you think about disabled voters and older folks, physically that is uh, unfair and just, you know, just not right to have to like, Wait six plus hours. Right. So if people are out there wondering, like the benefits of a national holiday for voting or mail voting, um, same day voting, just same day registration, automatic voting, registration, automatic registration. We need all of that. All of those things that you might think are good because you, it'll help, um, you know, uh, de-suppress, <laughs> help <laughs> liberate, you know, racial inequalities in voting. Like those things are just as important. And I don't understand the reason. And for poor people, folks, too, like you said, there's an intersection here between poverty and race and disability. Mm-hmm. Like, those are the people who are, like, the most kept away. Yes. Like, boxed out. So it's no wonder that our laws box people out. Like, it's it's a system. It's a system mm-hmm. that boxes out people who we don't want to participate. We don't want to p- actually put at the levers of power. And I also think, you know, this shows how scared and insecure mm-hmm. certain political parties are. Because if your platform isn't strong, then, you know, you're obviously interested in suppressing the vote. But if you actually have a platform that addresses the needs of all the people, would you want them to vote? <laughs> so, you know, with the, okay, you know, I won't be like 
I love the bastard GOP, but it's like, you know, what are they afraid of? Mm-hmm. If you allow people to vote. And I think that's the thing. It's like, it says something about who you're beholden you behold to, which is dark money and all that stuff. But again, that's, that's not talk for another day. Yes. Um, we kind of have to wrap up, but I, I have a, a scary way of, of putting what we just talked about, which is that I do worry sometimes that the GOP behaves as though they're not worried about winning a fair election which is my paranoid yeah. view on that. Yeah. And then there's the, I will, let's, we'll end on a more hopeful way of framing it, which is that if we can get people involved, the more people we do ask to participate and give the ability to participate, mm-hmm. the more likely it is that we live in a just society. Like, yeah, and I definitely want to say that, you know, voting is not the only way yep. to create change. Because again, there's a privilege there. There's people who can't vote, whether they're undocumented or they have a felony. Which again, that speaks to a lot of people you know, in our country. So getting involved in our communities, attending meetings, telling your story, engaging with your community, those are all forms of political participation. Mm-hmm. It's that plus voting will hopefully make a change, but like you, I feel almost nervous to be hopeful. Yeah. And yeah, I think we have to, we have to have some sort of hope because otherwise, what's it it all for? I said this on my last podcast at the end, which people don't always listen all the way to the end, but maybe they'll hear this, which is that, um, Hope isn't just a feeling. Hope is also an action. And we can act with hope even if we don't feel it. Yeah. And I think every day, just to bring it back to the anthology of publishing, it's called called Resistance and Hope. It's about the relationship between what we do every day in terms of to resist the power, to resist the oppression, to resist the inequality, but, but also the idea that with all the protests and fear and anger, there has to be hope to underlie it. Then why else, you know, why else would we do it, right? Why else would we do what we do and to be who we are? Alice, it is so great to see you. It is so great to see you. The book is available in download form, and I assume there's an audio book, probably. It will be on my website. Yes. Uh, available as electronic version, in part to make sure that as many people as possible can have mm-hmm. access to it. It's called Resistance and Hope, Croup Wisdom for the People. Alice, I, again, so good to see you. And um, hopefully next time we speak, uh, there'll be even more to be hopeful about. Agreed. Okay.